In The Room podcast. This is Josie Hunter, the editor-in-chief of the Greenspoon Review. And in fact, what you're about to listen to is the interview that inspired this podcast. Yes, we're taking you back to spring 2021. So consider this a holiday gift. So we hope you all enjoyed all of the winter holidays, Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and any others that I am missing at the moment. But please enjoy. Happy New Year. We will see you guys in the spring. So welcome. I'm Dr. Laura Smith. I'm the chair of the English department, and I am very happy to welcome you. This is our seventh annual visiting writer reading. Um, so this this um, event brings um, emerging writers like Nate Brown to our campus to work really closely with our students. And over the past few years, this series has featured people like Carmen Maria Machado, who was a, who came here the year before she was a finalist for the National Book Award. Awesome. Or Ty Himba Jess, who came here right before he won the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry. So we are very much looking forward to see what happens to you in the coming year. <laughs> we know you have a book coming, so. We hope good things happen after you leave us. So we had a really good time in yesterday's workshops. Um, there are workshops for writers and for editors. Nate's been incredibly generous in sharing his experiences and tips. So this series is made possible by the gift of Brooke Pierce, who was a professor in our English department back when Stevenson was Villa Julie College. Um, he taught here from 1988 to 1998. So we have him to thank for this series. Um, and I also want to thank Megan Nyland, Professor Nyland, um, who worked very closely with Nate to plan our events this year. So thank you to Professor Nyland. So it is my very great pleasure now to introduce author and editor Nate Brown. Um, Nate Brown is a fiction writer and an editor, and his stories and essays have appeared in the Iowa Review, in the Mississippi Review, in Five Chapters, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Publishers Weekly, Lit Hub, Barrel House. You've learned a lot about magazines and journals and publishing forms in the last couple of days. So these, um, these names may be familiar. These are these kinds of magazines. So he's also the managing editor of the award-winning literary magazine, um, American short fiction. But Nate is also one of Baltimore's most enthusiastic and beloved literary citizens and champions, right? Everyone knows Nate, and that's because Nate shows up for writers. He supports the work of emerging writers by showing up at everyone's readings in bookstores and coffee houses, and by hosting a reading series in his own home to bring voices to Baltimore and by bringing the work of writers to the page in American short fiction, by selecting them and going through this editing process that he's talked to us about the last couple of days. So I'm so pleased to welcome him here tonight. And I also want to, at this moment, introduce Josie. So Nate Brown is gonna read for a little bit and then he's gonna be in conversation with Josie Hunter. So Josie is a, a junior English major and a professional minor in entrepreneurship and small business development and the associate editor of the Green Spring Review and a producer of the podcast Also Flow. So I'm very pleased to hand it over to Nate Brown. All right, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. It's great to see you again. And thanks, Professor Nyland, for everything. I think that's so cool that Professor Brooke Pierce sort of made this possible and that it sort of endures. That's a, that's a really cool thing to see, you know, professors who are really, you know, invested in their English departments and writing programs. So I'm really honored to be here. And um, as I said yesterday, I, I've had such a wonderful experience as an instructor at Stevenson. And I, I just sort of adore the faculty at Stevenson and, um, and the students in particular. So it means a lot to me personally to get to read tonight. I am even more delighted that I get to talk to Josie Hunter, who, um, you know, I've, I've worked with in a really limited capacity at um, the summer writing program at Stevenson, but um, I'm really delighted to, to get to talk to such a absolutely savvy and sort of whip smart thinker like Josie. So thank you all for having me. I'm going to read a little bit here at the top from a manuscript uh, that's been, that I've been working on the same book for a long, long time, um, a little over a decade. So it's, it's in three big chunks. The first 300 pages are about a mom. The second 300 pages are about her younger son. Uh, his name is Kevin, and that's what I'm going to read from tonight. And then the last 300 pages are about her elder son, uh, a guy named Alex. So really all you need to know uh, before I read this excerpt is 
The year is 2000, and Kevin and Gloria King are moving Kevin into his freshman year dorm. Uh, they're from Central California, but they're at Cornell University in upstate New York. So a very different environment, and it's sort of about the, the ongoing tensions between this, this frankly jerky kid, Kevin, and his mom, Gloria. Kevin is the protagonist here, and his new roommate is named Ryan Tipton, his freshman year roommate, who is a character from Rochester, New York, not too far from Ithaca, who's mixed race. And I think for Kevin, who sort of grew up in a really homogenous you know, place and in a very white bread sort of circumstances, this is presenting him with a variety of new things. And it's sort of his first reaction to Ryan is uh, hopefully played for humor, but Ryan uh, is sort of the best friend throughout this sort of section, or rather his closest friend. And it's, if anything, I think this section of the novel is certainly reflective of my own experience going to college uh, as a relatively ignorant first-generation college kid who'd never been on a plane before. But I hope also to sort of play some of this for humor because uh, that's a really fraught experience. And I, I don't know, I hope this works. So we'll see how it goes. I've never uh, read from this section of the novel anywhere. So uh, this is a bit of an experiment. I'll just read for a few minutes and then Joe's and I will talk. Uh, oh, and his, his mom's name again is Gloria. As she always did when meeting a stranger, Gloria ramped up her small talk, the kind of banter that Kevin had heard her make his entire life in any number of venues. She'd chat people up while waiting for a table in a restaurant or while pumping gas. That wasn't so bad. In some ways, it was a trait he respected in his mom. She wasn't afraid of people and she doled out her well-intentioned chit-chat indiscriminately. If you were in front of her in the grocery store and you happened to be buying the same kind of cheese, Gloria might say, oh, we're getting the same cheddar. I always get Tillamook. It's the best, isn't it? You didn't even have to speak English. Gloria would smile and gab and nod whether you understood her or not. God help you if you were in a waiting room with her. Now, though, as she asked his new roommate Ryan about himself, about his family, about the donut tattooed on his calf, a yellow ring frosted with pink glaze and dappled with colored sprinkles, a Simpsons reference, Ryan explained to Gloria. Kevin didn't find his mother's chatting charming. He found it, and he found Ryan obnoxious. Ryan had grown up near Rochester, he said, and had taken time off after high school to travel. He'd volunteered at a farm co-op near Asheville, North Carolina, had bounced around a bit working for organic farmers, and had taken some art classes in Savannah before deciding to move north once more. During his gap year, he said, he'd learned how to make kombucha, how to throw and fire his own stoneware mugs and plates on a wheel, how to build vermiculture bins as well. He'd come to Cornell's ag school because he could get in-state tuition and because he had a dream of designing and manufacturing worm boxes for home use. He was going to change the way Americans thought about garbage, he told Kevin and Gloria, all within 10 minutes of meeting them and with no more prompting than Gloria's benign opening question. So, Ryan, what do you want to study? As Ryan and Gloria blathered on about worm boxes, Kevin unpacked his things, placing them on his dresser and desk with extra attack, as if everything from his laptop to his Bill Clinton mug weighed 40 or 50 times what they actually did. Gloria nodded and gave polite uh-hahs and ohs as Ryan talked, even as she eyed Kevin's overacted unpacking. I'm going to take a series of courses in ecology, biology, agroeconomics. I'll probably have to be a double major to really make it happen, but I think there's something to this. Imagine a worm box in every kitchen and a garden in every yard. That's what this is about. What's the this in that sentence, Kevin thought? This is about getting a worm box into every kitchen? The fuck? A box filled with worms that eat your table scraps so that you can get so that you can put their shit in your flower beds? That's what his new roommate was talking about? If you couldn't get people to drive cleaner cars or to recycle their plastics or to agree that mass shootings were probably a really good reason to ban the most restrictive, uh, the most destructive guns, then how was Ryan Tipton going to convince people to put his janky worm-filled boxes in their kitchens where they prepared food and ate with their families? Kevin rolled his eyes and looked at his mother for a confirmation that Ryan's plan was hilariously unhinged, expecting perhaps that they'd laugh about this over dinner. But to his disappointment, Gloria seemed to have taken Ryan seriously. She wasn't smiling perfunctorily and nodding along. Ryan's idea, even if sincere, sounded like nothing so much as bullshit slung to a sympathetic ear, an ear attached to a woman who was an obvious boomer and therefore an ally on both the environmental and economic fronts. Kevin saw hints of some shared fantasy. Ryan there, imagining that Gloria was someone who once had dreams of hitchhiking the country, of being free. 
and Gloria standing there before Ryan, grinning and believing that Ryan's lunacy wasn't lunacy at all, but was instead the sort of big-picture ambition that her own two sons so sadly lack. Ryan's neo-hippie jabber would be mistaken by Gloria as drive. Kevin listened as she asked follow-up after follow-up. How did these boxes work? What were they made of? It was easy to drag Gloria into agreeing with most things if they were expressed with a certain kind of youthful enthusiasm. She wanted so badly to believe that the ideals that she'd, she'd held when she was young, cleaning up the coasts, writing vaguely threatening letters to timber companies and commercial fishing operations, lived on somewhere in other younger people who were not her sons and who had smarts and wherewithal and who weren't yet bogged down by the demands of jobs and kids. While Kevin hadn't minded using Gloria's own ideals against her when it suited him, it was another thing to watch somebody like Ryan confirm for her that what she'd always thought about college was still perhaps the case. You went to have your idealism confirmed, and to ambitiously pursue that thing, whatever it was, that one desire, that one passion that really moved you. Never mind that Gloria hadn't ever mentioned any great passion, or that she had dropped out of college herself. The trouble was, Kevin didn't have a worm box. He didn't have anything close to a worm box. He knew what he must have seemed like to his mother, standing there unpacking his crap while his go-getter roommate answered her questions. Kevin's relative lack of zeal and insight must have struck her as a real deficit of maturity, a complete babyishness. On several occasions, it occurred to him that if he just gave her an answer, he could tell her anything. She'd probably be satisfied. But then what would he say? That he wanted to go to law school, business school, medical school? That he wanted to work in finance? Those possibilities sounded fucking awful, but so did teaching and nonprofit work. So did virtually every form of design he could think of. So did all manner of entrepreneurship. So did policy and public administration and social work. So did marketing or publicizing anything. So did management and cooking food or serving it. So did driving other people around or selling them things. So did building houses, building businesses, building clientele, building networks, and building worm boxes. He didn't want to be an owner or an administrator or a conciliary, a fiscal agent, fiduciary or instructor, didn't want to be a pilot, an inventor, a marine, an architect, a firefighter or paramedic, a veterinarian or a home health aide, a college counselor or a chef or a psychoanalyst, a comedian or muralist, an astronaut or drug dealer, an undertaker or retail manager. He shouldn't have had to know. Not yet, anyway. Still, it wasn't merely Ryan's entrepreneurial spirit that had made Gloria light up. It was the whole spindly package. It was Ryan's stature, his big, dumb, handsome eyeballs, the spray of freckles across his nose and brow, his hemp necklace, his goofy-ass Simpsons tattoo, his total novelty, a tall, talkative kid from Rochester who'd taken a gap year and who had dreads and a Grateful Dead t-shirt on. Out of all of the meatheads and future financial criminals at Cornell, Kevin had been placed with a guy who'd appeal to Gloria in ways that would make her extra irritating to interact with. He could already see the comparisons she'd draw, the subtle hints she'd drop about how he could learn a thing or two from Ryan's positive attitude, his earnest grin, his concern for the environment. These were winning attributes, and Kevin could have easily been charmed by them as well. Ryan was a giant, gangly, grinning puppy. And who didn't love a puppy? Kevin probably would have even liked the guy had Ryan not so cavalierly chosen the good side of the room, and had Gloria not taken such an immediate and embarrassing shine to him. Okay, that's where I'll pause. Okay, that was really good. I was uh, really interested to, for you to keep reading. Gloria sounds like an interesting character. <laughs> I feel like I've, we've all met a Gloria at the grocery store. <laughs> oh, yeah. And sometimes it's great, and sometimes it's like, okay, I got to get going. Absolutely. Okay, so it's Thursday, so it's only right that we have a throwback. Uh, Nate, what got you started in writing, and how did you get into publishing? Take me back to where it all started. You know, I mean, really, I've been kind of doing the same sort of work since I got a job, and that was when I turned 15 in high school. In California, if you're 15, you can get a work permit. Uh, a lot of states are like that. So I got a work permit, and then I got a job at a B. Dalton bookstore in the mall, because I, I sort of, I don't think I knew... You know, certainly as a, as a kid, I don't think I knew at all what I wanted to do, but I liked, I liked reading well enough and I was interested in books. So I figured if I was going to have a retail job, um, that would be a good one. And so I just, because I worked there, I got a discount on books. And as any bookseller can tell you, whether they're 15 or whether they're 50, if you work in a bookstore, about half of your paycheck goes back to the bookstore because you end up buying all these books. So I really started reading widely and it was this writer, funny enough, a writer I have really nothing in common with, but 
which is like a, one, one of the great things about a reading life, right? I was started reading these books by Paul Auster, a writer from New York who uh, was living in France as a young man and, and wrote a lot about that and wrote a lot of like weird sort of speculative experimental work. And I just got really interested. So I think it was then that I decided I wanted to sort of try writing, but I mostly wrote pretty bad poems in high school. And I really wanted to try and it's so silly in retrospect, because I was kind of a my family's super blue collar and uh, we grew up in a pretty rural place. So it was sort of like it was like the biggest ambition that I could think of was to be a writer. And so I started keeping like notebooks and writing really embarrassing poetry in those. And then um, I had a as so many of us do, you get really lucky with an instructor in high school or in college who just motivates you. And um, I had this high school English teacher who once asked me like what I thought I would do after high school. And I thought, I, I, I think I told him like, my dad is a retired homicide detective and there are cops and, and people who are fire personnel in my family. So I said something like, oh, I don't know, I'll probably just be a cop or a fireman. And, and he was like, wait, but you write and like you read a lot and you seem like you maybe would be good to go to college. Is that something you want to do? And I was like, oh, no. Uh, but he really helped me out and like helped me. I, I applied to college in the last couple of years that you could apply on paper applications. And that instructor helped me fill out an application and go to college. So I got to college. I didn't know anything about anything. I was an idiot. I'd never been on a plane before. I wore um, like Birkenstock clogs in the snow because I thought they, you know, they had a closed toe. So I was like, oh, that'll be warm enough. No, it was a bad deal. So I got to college. I got, you know, shown pretty much a whole world of stuff that I didn't know. And I, I felt like from there it was relatively easier because as opposed to where I grew up and sort of how I grew up, it wasn't a question once time I was in college. It wasn't a big problem if you said you want to be a writer. People were like, oh, okay, whatever. So I took some writing classes and I met some great people. I met my wife, who's a poet, in an introductory creative writing class. And yeah, and we've been married, God, we've been together 20 years this year. So in a weird way, all of that desire to be a writer and to be a reader has really shaped my entire life, um, from working in a bookstore to working at Random House to working at a literary journal. So that's kind of the long and short of it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I can definitely agree that I have written horrible poems in high school as well. It's always good to have a to go back on those and have a good laugh. <laughs> yeah. Actually, <laughs> what does it feel like to you when you look at them now? I'm proud that I've grown, but it's always a joy. I don't like feel embarrassed. I'm like, I'm happy I don't write like this anymore, but this is where I came from. Like, it's just keeps me humble, I guess. Like, as I get better, you know, you're looking at the old work that you've produced. I, I think that's like exactly the right attitude. I used to be really horrified by the stuff that I'd written, but I think as I've, as I've gotten older, and you're clearly more mature than I am, Josie, there is that feeling that like, I admire the attempt. I'm like glad that I was that kind of 16 year old that really wanted to write a great poem, even if I didn't know how to do it. So that's good. I think it's, it's good to offer our, our younger selves a little compassion. Right. <laughs> you mentioned family. Uh, I know that the stereotype for anybody wanting to go into some creative or artistic career is that family and friends may give you some flack or pushback. Was there any of that in your family? What did friends and families think or say about you wanting to pursue this career? I, I think all the questions that come up, uh, particularly for folks who are from a working class background, the, the questions, it's not so much framed as skepticism so much as it's concerned about money. So it's like, oh, my gosh, how are you going to make money doing that? Or, you know, what what is the approach? But I have to hand it um, to my parents. They were pretty, pretty awesomely supportive. But in, in part, that's because, you know, they, they were proud parents and whatnot. But, but as much as that, because they didn't go to college, um, it's interesting, both of them are pretty big readers, but neither uh, went to college. And so they, they were a little bit, they were as mystified by being in college and what that meant as I was. So to their credit, I think they just really trusted me. And they were like, well, we might not see a path towards making this work, but you'll, you can figure it out. But the, the, that initial, or at least one of the things that is sort of inferred in the question that's really important is, it is absolutely true that people from working class and middle class backgrounds have a, a higher barrier of entry in the arts generally. And that's because for better or worse, a lot of the arts, especially the entry level positions are really, really low paid. So what sort of happens is, uh, even when I worked at Random House, you know, I was, I was broke because I didn't make much money and I lived in a really expensive place. There are people who are broker than I was who had to like work retail on the nights and weekends. And of course, because of, you know, the absolutely you know, racist history of stratification 
in this country, it meant that if there were young editors or writers of color in the arts around 2004 when I worked at Random House, they were usually in more dire financial straits than folks who'd like who literally sort of had trust funds and therefore, or whose parents bought them an apartment in New York as like a graduation present. So they didn't really have, you know, they had taxes, but not rent. And I think for those people, it's sort of, and I don't mean to, there are plenty of, you know, rich people who are, who are great, but there's a kind of, I couldn't make the kinds of assumptions about my life that they could. And I think I spent a lot of time resenting that. And frankly, I still resent it because I think it means that our arts culture is really, really heavily skewed towards wealthy people, towards privileged people, and towards white people. So we're not even close to fixing that, even though I'm glad to know that we're addressing it more publicly now than we were 15 years ago. Right, right. I definitely noticed that as well with us addressing that kind of discrepancy over the summer. Still now, like people just sharing uh, resources and books and movies, just literature in general from people of color, from communities that are underserved or overlooked. I just think you're right, like that, that gap is still very much there and I can understand your resentment. And it's, you know, it's funny, I there are such awesome change makers like working right now. It, like it, it thrills me that Lisa Lucas uh, just made the change from being the executive director of the National Book Foundation to being a publisher at Pantheon, which is an imprint of Knopf, which is a random house company. And I'm like, wow, Lisa Lucas is such a sharp reader and such an advocate for the arts. But, you know, that's also, you know, we need publishing needs about 55 Lisa Lucases. And it just, I mean, 55, what am I talking about? It needs about a thousand of them. You could publish, I mean, not to be a jerk about this, you could publish nothing but writers of color, really, truly, in literary fiction in particular. You could publish nothing but literary fiction by writers of color for the next 200 years and still not make up for the historical discrepancies in publishing. And I think that's something I think about all the time. It's something that was pretty evident in undergraduate and that I'm writing about in this section of the book. And it's something that's still evident in higher education and in the arts. So I don't know. I think, I think we have to have it's funny because, you know, even in an age of pretty great social change and, and nominal progress, it still just seems to me that we are so far behind being where we need to be. And it's funny, I didn't expect to quite go here in this conversation, but I'm glad you asked the question because I do not take my job at the magazine for granted. I don't take all of the, the sort of lucky breaks I've gotten, you know, for granted, but I also regret that we are not much farther along in terms of hiring practices and representation than where we were when I got my first publishing job. So. Yeah, we got it. It's a pretty steep hill to climb. Yes, the synergy needs to definitely continue. But um, as we are talking about writers, that's perfect segue to my next question. Um, I think most writers will confirm that to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader or a consumer of some sort of literature. So who and what influences you in your work? You know, I think I would have said as recently as five or 10 years ago, I would just name a whole bunch of authors. But I also, I think, and, and sometimes that's still true. There are people whose work consistently surprises me. People who I think I'm going to try and read everything they ever write. So people like R.O. Kwan, Reese Kwan, uh, people like Paul Yoon, people like Laura Vandenberg, people like Lauren Groff, Carmen Maria Machado, who was in grad school with my, my poet wife. I'm so glad that Carmen has really taken off because not only, I think these writers, they're not just beautiful writers at the level of the sentence. Someone like Paul Yoon or Carmen Maria Machado is also, they are working with huge ideas. The kinds of social problems that we're talking about in conversation here, they're tackling in the work. And so anyone who approaches Paul Yoon's The Mountain can't help but think of you know, um, industrialized slavery or the problems of environmental toxification. Uh, someone who's reading Carmen Maria Machado can't ignore some of the basic misogyny that's extant in the culture because it's right there in the work. So at the same time that the work itself is like super entertaining and absolutely beautifully written, it seems honest and it seems like uh, willing to take readers places that more timid writers might not. And I, I just have the utmost respect, well, for Carmen in particular on that front, but also, like I said, Paul Yoon and, and Lauren Groff. Outside of writers themselves, I think it's been a really exciting time to be a viewer of all kinds of other media. And so whether that's, you know, a great Netflix show or whether that's a good adaptation into sort of a miniseries, I've been really impressed by the weirder things that are coming to television now. I think we've had uh, some pretty significant 
I mean, clearly really significant um, experimental movements in literature. And it's really cool to see our television uh, shows and our movies get a bit weirder too. So whether that's like Michaela Cole, um, I May Destroy You, uh, which is told in sort of non-linear way and is really episodic and sort of fragmented, or whether that's something really goofy like What We Do in the Shadows, which is about vampires in Staten Island. I'm really grateful to have this, like all these broad genre interests. I feel like one of the best things I've seen in the last 15 or 20 years in publishing is that that real hardcore, super, you know, Western canon biased priggishness about what counts as literature and what doesn't is starting to go away a bit and genre snobbery with it. And I think that's great because we shouldn't be ashamed of loving the stuff we love. And I... And I love a Paul Yoon story, and I also really love what we do in the shadows. There's room for me to love both. Totally agree. Don't I haven't finished the series, but I started a while ago Lovecraft Country. It got super weird and uncomfortable. I had to pause it, but I probably will come back to it because it was super interesting. Yeah, and that's, I mean, Lovecraft Country is like at the end of every episode, you have to like take a deep breath. It's like, oh boy, that was a lot going on. Yes, it, it, it was, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for this right now, totally. but um, it was definitely very interesting. <laughs> but um, according to your, your website, Little Merit Rides the Elevator All the Way to the Top is, looks like your most recent short story published. I read it. It was quite interesting. It reminded me of a certain president. <laughs> but what inspired that story? That was Trump's election. I mean, I was, I was really like so many people i was really i was surprised and I, then i was embarrassed for being surprised because it means that i was assuming that the electorate was was frankly more moral than they are i don't think you can morally uh, you know wow I'm, I'm just being super political but it's true i don't think you can morally support someone like donald trump in any reasonable way i don't think there's a moral basis for that support there's all kinds of i think his support is largely a kind of really hopped up fandom that's based on you know, racialized resentment in particular. So I was surprised when he was elected. And then I was very frustrated with myself for being surprised because it meant that I was not, in some ways, it's good not to be a pessimist about the country and about where we're headed, but it's almost worse to be a disappointed optimist, to be surprised by how bad it got. And so I wrote that story as a bit of a pressure valve. I, I was taking a break from the, the novel. I just finished, well, actually, it was right about then. I'd finished a really big draft of the book. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to try some short stuff. And within a couple of weeks, Trump was elected. And that was one of the first short things I wrote in a long time. Um, and I've got a few more in the hopper, but that one, it's satire, of course. And it's nominally sort of a horror story. But it felt like, I don't know, after... After canvassing for people and after donating money to politicians and after, you know, stumping for them on social media and talking to your family about your preferred candidate and your policies and whatnot, to feel so beaten down, it felt like I couldn't have a political response except to write fiction. Fiction seemed like, I don't know, a really particular response, but one that I was capable of having. I agree. I agree. I definitely wrote a poem the night he was elected in 2016, just super angry. And even when the insurrection happened January 6th, I found out later than most people, I wasn't on social media or anything. And I was like, I don't know why I'm like sad or anything like you. Like I was, I was an optimist, but just like, eh, we kind of, I mean, we had to see it coming kind of, you know, there's a lot of mixed feelings there, but I think this is time now for another reading. You got it. Well, I'll pick up a little later in that scene. So it's still Gloria and her son, Kevin, our protagonist in that dorm room. Ryan was sincere enough, and he was a year older, and had a way with strangers that could only have come from spending those months hitchhiking between hippie farms where you had to meet people easily shake a lot of hands if you wanted to wanted a ride or a meal. It was all terribly romantic, this story of Ryan's. But there was something else that had gotten under Kevin's skin, a more ambiguous frustration, like a sour smell whose source you can't locate in the fridge. Ryan was sure of himself. Was more comfortable in his skin than Kevin was. And because his own parents weren't there to help him move into the dorm, there was a clear opening for Gloria to engage him in conversation to help him with his things, to be a nosy in ways that wouldn't have been possible had Ryan's own mother been there with him. He supposed it was that impropriety, that pushiness on his mother's part that had gotten to him at first, and then, because it hadn't seemed to bother Ryan in the least, had instead seemed to delight him and draw him into more chatter, Kevin felt left out. That was it. He was in his new room with his new roommate and his mother, yet he was the one sitting around twiddling his thumbs while the two of them yucked it up. Why was he even here, the odd one, out? 
These worm boxes sound like a terrific idea, said Gloria. Sounds like you've given this a lot of thought. If it were cost-effective and easy enough, I'd put a worm box in my kitchen in California. Kevin rolled his eyes, and we saw that his mother hadn't noticed. He rolled them again, while looking directly at her. Nothing. Seriously, she said, we've got a nice front yard, don't we, Kevin? We could easily compost this way. I don't know why we're not doing it already. You're not doing it already, said Ryan, for four reasons. Only four, said Kevin, though neither Ryan nor his mother responded. I spent a lot of time working on this. First, people just aren't educated about vermiculture. People know about recycling and about traditional composting, but there are still lots of places that don't even offer those things. Second, people have no idea how easy and cheap it is. If they only knew how much they could save on traditional fertilizer, they'd buy a worm box in an instant. Would they, said Kevin? Would they really go out and buy a worm box instead of picking up a sack of miracle Grow? I mean, you can get miracle Grow everywhere. You can buy it at Target. Sure they would, said Gloria, if they knew how much cheaper over the long run and how much better for the environment worm poo is than the chemical nonsense in miracle Grow. Exactly, said Ryan. That's exactly it. Well, you use miracle Grow, don't you, Mom? said Kevin. I don't think so. Pretty sure, said Kevin. Or, at least, we always have a big yellow sack that says miracle Grow on it in the garage. Third, Ryan continued, ignoring Kevin's interruption, it's a problem with the media. Isn't it always, said Kevin. With a stranglehold on our food system, it's no surprise that skeptics of organic agriculture get all the airtime and most of the print. Monsanto, ConAgra, those are huge corporations with a lot of power. They lobby. They donate to political campaigns on both sides of the aisle. They have deep pockets and holdings and, ho and, holdings and subsidiaries around the globe. Okay, but they also feed a lot of people, don't they, said Kevin? I mean, in the final analysis. Ryan laughed a particularly dismissive laugh. A laugh you can tell a person is trying to make seem spontaneous. Well, yeah, I guess they do. If you consider producing, selling, and encouraging the ingestion of toxins feeding, then yes, Big Ag feeds a lot of people. Kevin's just playing devil's advocate, said Gloria. He can be something of an agitator. Well, that's good, said Ryan. We need more agitators, more people to question the system rather than to blindly adhere to its dogma. We need to talk and fight about these things. We need a hullabaloo in the streets. A hullabaloo, said Kevin. Gloria stared directly at her son. She held a palm slightly up to him, as if he were an offending animal, a barking dog or a hissing cat that needed to be kept at bay. That this was happening in his new dorm room in front of a new roommate was embarrassing, but not just because he minded Gloria being corrective in front of Ryan. It was worse than that. He was mortified by how his mother was attempting to relate to Ryan as a kind of peer, not as Kevin's mom, certainly not as Mrs. King, but as a spirited co-environmentalist, a person Ryan should feel free to speak to as an adult. It wasn't flirting exactly, but she had affected the demeanor she used when she wanted to be liked, which made it as good as flirting. Fine, Kevin thought. Fine. He'd let them yap. All right, so I plan to stop there. Up to you. That's more or less the scene of Kevin meeting uh, his sort of future best buddy. That was great. That was great. I'm excited for when this book comes out, hopefully soon. Me too. <laughs> All right. So. Which do you like to write more, fiction or nonfiction? The challenges are really different. Fiction is, you know, you build it from whole cloth. So, you know, some combination of character, plot, and setting, and all of those things are under your control for better or worse. Nonfiction, especially sort of emergent forms of nonfiction. So people who are writing braided or fractured essays, people who are sort of writing in a journalistic way, but also centering their own identities so that they can tell a story that's true on, on, on its merits or on its facts, but that also has something important to say about the positionality of the writer. I think that's really a cool space in which to write. And there are people who, who do a terrific job of that. People, well, I'm thinking particularly of like Samantha Irby, who writes really, really hilarious uh, essays about the culture and about her personal life, but who also is reporting a ton of information um, people like Baltimore's own D. Watkins, who, you know, is writing, you know, memoir, but is also writing cultural criticism. People like Maggie Nelson, author of Bluets and the Argonauts, who writes in an incredibly sort of fractured way, but who curates information on the page in a way that's really beautiful to encounter and often really pretty stunning. So I think nonfiction is super interesting to me right now. And I like it because it's sort of a break from all of the heavy lifting of imagining all your characters and your settings and your plot from whole cloth. With the scaffolding of, you know, nonfiction in front of you, you've got the opportunity to pull from life, to do some research, to interview people. And there's real power in that. And that's, that's not something new, right? This is sort of 
writing an oral history or sort of participating in an oral history project and reporting information about the self and about other people, this is sort of an age old practice too. And I really, I'm really impressed by sort of the contemporary journals and venues that publish excellent nonfiction, because whether that's something like Eula Biss's Time and Distance Overcome or CJ Hauser's essay, The Crane Wife that went viral at the Paris Review a couple of years ago, I, I feel like these days I'm more often surprised by really exciting works of nonfiction that sort of stun me. Which isn't to say that's not, not true of fiction, but I'm sort of used to looking for surprise in fiction. And it's only maybe in the last five or 10 years that I've really started reading a, a lot of nonfiction. In terms of writing nonfiction, the challenges are quite different because you have a dedication to, to the truth. You owe the reader the truth. In fiction writing, that truth is an imagined or believed truth that the author might hold dear. But in nonfiction, um, if something doesn't pass the sniff test, you either look lazy or sloppy or, or God forbid, biased or that you have some ulterior motive in presenting information in the way you've chosen to do so. So nonfiction is in some ways more of a minefield, but I think when I've written an essay that I feel really proud of, it's a completely different sort of feeling than when you're writing a story that you feel really good about. The story feels like your pet. It's like, I don't know, it's sort of like, if you've had a cat or a dog, you have a special relationship with your cat or dog, which doesn't mean you don't love other people's cats and dogs too, but like your cat is kind of your favorite cat. And I f that's how I feel about fiction, where I'm like, ah, I really, this is my project, this is what I'm working on. Nonfiction, because it's so often still published by journalistic outfits, feels a bit more collaborative too. So there are editors who might take a query from you or take a pitch or even solicit you for an essay. And that's a whole other way of working because you're working to please yourself. You're also working to sort of satisfy an editor's requirements or desires. In that way, it's a little less of a, it's a less lonely writing process for me. And it feels more collaborative. And I'm a pretty social, social dude. This pandemic has almost killed me because I haven't seen friends in months and months and months. So the interactions with nonfiction editors or people for whom I've written journalism, it feels really collaborative and creative. And the collaboration is the difference because the fiction is me in this room at night, mostly clacking away. But the nonfiction, it's bouncing ideas off of people and doing some research and doing some interviews. And it's a lot of fun. Very insightful. I've never thought about nonfiction that way, but now that you've said that, that makes a lot of sense to me, the collaboration piece, the pride you feel. So very interesting. So what's the most interesting experience you've had at American Short Fiction? You know, American Short Fiction is a, a magazine that was founded in 1991 in Austin, Texas. And then it's it's changed hands a couple of times. It was, it was like a part of UT for a while. And then it was independently published by a nonprofit. And uh, my current bosses bought it about 10 years ago um, and the current publishers. And so each, with each new iteration of the journal, sort of the aesthetics have remained the same. I think, our, I think frankly, the editors at the journal have, have largely always looked for stories that shock or that make you laugh or that make you cry a bit. And a few years ago, it happens every, every once in a while in, in an editor's career where like you see something that's completely new and just stunning and, and weird and beautiful. And I've had that experience, and this is, this is true, I think, at every literary journal. I think just about every editor on the planet could describe this feeling to you. But I feel like I've had them consistently at ASF, where it's like pretty much with every issue, there's something that just punches me right in the face. Part of that is I'm like sensitive. I'm like a, I'm a sensitive person. I cry at movies. Uh, some, a friend of mine once, and it was a joke, but it's sort of true, described me as a freshly shucked oyster, like kind of quivering and vulnerable. <laughs> So maybe that's maybe that's why I cry at stories. But in our last issue, I've got it here somewhere. In our last issue, we, we dedicated the last issue to emerging black writers. Um, in part, kind of like what we were saying when Trump was elected, I can't create a movement on my own. I can go to marches and do things, but I'm not a political operative. I don't work in politics. I've never worked on the Hill. I don't write legislation. So what I can do to respond to Trump's election might seem silly, but it felt important to me, which was write a satirical short story. In a similar way, after George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, our staff took a long, hard look at ourselves because the three of us at the top of the mast are white editors. Our reading staff is wildly diverse, but I think we're under no um, illusion that we've even done yet done the necessary work to diversify our staff fully. And that puts you in this position where you can either not say anything, not have any response at all, or you could sort of pop up a solidarity statement on social media and hope people at least understand that you're attempting to sort of show that you're on the side of righteousness. Better than that, I think we decided really early on 
that we needed to carve out some space at our own journal to give the ven hand the venue over to emerging black writers who had a lot to say, who still have, who always have had a lot to say, but haven't always had the venue through which to say it. So we uh, worked with a friend who's on our staff as a contributing editor, the writer Danielle Evans, who lives here in Baltimore and teaches at the uh, Johns Hopkins Writing Seminars. Danielle and I are really old friends. Uh, we've known each other, oh gosh, since about 2006. Danielle is one of these people, if you've ever read her work or if you've ever been lucky enough to meet her, she just has this incredible energy. She's really funny. She's absolutely a dedicated fiction writer. She's one of my favorite contemporary authors. And she's also deadly serious. She's a serious person. So when we approached her and said, Danielle, would you be interested in guest editing the next issue of American Short Fiction that's dedicated to emerging Black authors? She very rightly pointed out that asking her to do so, you know, is on the one hand a little flattering, and on the other hand, you're asking a black woman to do more labor on behalf of a cause that's going to serve, sure, serve the magazine well and hopefully serve the writers who appear in it well. But it wasn't a decision we came to sort of easily. And then we sort of collaborated with Danielle to figure out what writers would be included, how it would be edited, when it would be published, etc. And I'm very grateful to Danielle for all of that work. One of the pieces in that issue is called Sea Song. And it's by this writer named Desiree C. Bailey. And Desiree Bailey is a poet. She won the Yale Younger Poets Prize a year ago. So she's sort of the most recent entry in that prize's history. And her book of poems is being published by Yale University Press uh, in May. Desiree Bailey sent us this kind of prose poem, kind of short story that's written in this really like ecstatic island patois. And it's in it, this sort of, woman of the sea is speaking this heavy island patois and directing her commentary to the author, presumably Desiree C. Bailey. So there's this conversation between the figure in the work and the woman who wrote the work. And it is one of the funniest, weirdest things I've, I've read in a long time. And it just shocked the crap out of me. It is so, so good. So I guess one, in every writer's career, those are those moments. And that one really stands out recently. And two, uh, look up Desiree C. Bailey. She is, she's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to have to definitely check out that issue with that, her story in there. It definitely sounds really interesting. Josie, I'll send it to you because that piece in particular, if you like poetry and prose poems and like flash fiction, that's, that's one of the best things I've gotten to publish recently for sure. That's awesome. So what concrete advice do you have for writers and for those interested in the publishing industry? In some ways, well, in some ways, some of the advice is a little bit different depending on what you want to do. But the, the piece of advice that's relevant to both of those is you really have to be persistent. I think to develop a writing career, to publish stories, to keep sending work out after you face a lot of rejection, which every writer does, you have to be really resilient. You have to grow a bit of a thick skin and you have to do it not because you think you're going to get published or win accolades or make a lot of money or be on the New York Times bestseller list. Although all those things, <laughs> I would welcome all of those. But I think you have to do it because it feels important to you to do it. I can't even really articulate for myself why I feel that it's important. Because trying to articulate that feels almost as pointless as saying like, what does a painting mean? I, I, can't, I can look at a painting and find it beautiful and find it engaging and feel very moved by it, but asking what it means is kind of the wrong question. And so I've given myself a bit of a pass. I don't know why I find writing my own work important to me. It just is, and it has been for a long time. And so I persist at it. Um, with regards to publishing, I think the advice is similar. You have to be persistent even in the face of bad odds in terms of getting a job or certainly getting a well-paying job. But it, is, it does get easier once you have your foot in the door, in part because editorial experience is sort of rare. People working in literature, it's, it's a relatively small field. You know, all of us have to get groceries from someplace pretty much all the time because we eat three times a day. Not everyone's a big reader. Not everyone's going to the bookstore and is all jazzed up about it. And not everyone's going to literary events where they're going to buy a book just because it happened to be there. So it's a small world and it's exclusive and it can be a little clubby, which is all the more reason to keep banging on the door. The terrible truth of it in some ways is that there's a lot of unpaid internship, which frankly is a way of for organizations to take advantage of the youth and energy of people who don't have, yet have experience. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad bosses in publishing too, frankly. It's it's long been a kind of apprenticeship business, um, meaning you kind of get there and they teach you the business, which is great. And the best version of that relationship, you're a really good asset to the editor you're working for, and they're a really good asset to you because they're mentoring you up. 
But in the very worst version of that relationship, they're not really mentoring you. You're kind of going to pick up cupcakes for their niece's birthday party, or you're dropping their dry cleaning off. It's it's sort of devil wears Prada kind of stuff. And I know that's a cliche, but it's true that some creative industries, particularly I think the film industry and literary publishing in particular, can be a little abusive because people feel like they're show ponies. They're kind of like, well, I'm an executive editor at so-and-so publishing house, and I, I don't pick up my own dry cleaning. And I think those attitudes are waning. I think that's sort of a dying attitude, but they're still there. And Unfortunately, I have definitely seen people suffer in positions where they really didn't have a chance at promotion and ended up quitting. So even, well, let me say something important on that front really quickly, which is my very first publishing job was not the right job for me. It was a bad job. I had a fraught relationship with my boss and I was doing a lot of that step and fetch, a lot of stuff that I didn't feel too good to get someone's coffee, but I sort of didn't like that it was expected that I had to run personal errands. It seemed like not at all like part of the job. And so that didn't go particularly well, but I'm really glad I didn't give up on it. I'm really glad I didn't quit and say I'm never working in publishing again. Instead, I went and worked at a little magazine in Brooklyn, and then I went to graduate school, and then was really lucky enough to meet Adina Reitberger and Rebecca Markovitz, my co-editors, um, who actually, this is funny, I had sent American Short Fiction a story. They ended up not taking the story, but a couple of years later, at a writing conference, Adina Reitberger introduced her to myself, said, hey, I remember that story. And you're an editor at this magazine, right? And I said, yeah. She said, well, would you like to be an editor at our magazine? And I said, yeah, I really would. So that was real luck and that was real networking. And the networking thing I'm skeptical of, and I think everyone should be skeptical of it because your merits often have nothing to do with who you know. But it is true that if you stick around long enough and if you don't quit, you just meet more people because it's a small enough world. And those do represent opportunities. And I just got very lucky in that this particular opportunity was a really good fit for me. And I hope for the magazine too. Like, I hope I do a good job there. They, they say that I mostly do, so I'll take it. <laughs> well, I thank you for um, giving us examples and advice. It's always annoying when that question is asked and no one gives real advice. <laughs> so I thought that's why I asked. <laughs> um, I know it's a little vague. <laughs> It was still helpful. So closing out, what are your goals? What's next for you? Uh, you meant your book, we know, is soon coming out. Anything else you wanted to promote, I suppose? Well, you know, it's funny. It's, it's not quite soon coming out, frankly. I've got a lot of work to do. So I'm taking the summer off to do a big edit. And then this is, it's funny. It's just like you're, it's, Anyone who's taken a composition class, like at Stevenson, if you're teaching, you know, English 152, if you've taken that, your instructors likely have said something to you along the lines of writing is rewriting or revision is an important part of the process. Never has that seemed more true to me than, well, here, this is double spaced. This is the first 275 pages of the book. And this is what I have to do before the end of August is work on those 275 pages as well as about the last 100 pages. So, and it takes me a long time. I'm slow. I like to joke, even though it's not a joke, that I'm slow at everything. I did kindergarten twice. So for me, uh, the, the rewriting has become a big part of the process. And I hope this summer to send it back to my agent. That's a whole other side of the publishing world. And then my agent will hopefully represent the book to a publisher who will think it's good enough to buy it. And what's funny is at that point, the editor will then edit it and I'll do more revision. So it's pretty, um, pretty wild. My friend Jasmine Chan, uh, a writer in Philadelphia, has a big, fat novel coming out called The School for Mothers, and it's sort of a spe piece of speculative fiction. And um, Jasmine Chan is, is just a beautiful writer, and she's been working on this book forever and ever. I recently saw a picture on Instagram of her something like six pass through like page proofs. So she has her novel printed out six times. It's like a big, big tower. A lot of trees died for that book. But um, I think it's been a really good object lesson in stick to and um, in the importance of revision. So what's next for me is revising that. And I've been sort of cheating on the novel on the side with the nonfiction project, um, a sort of a sort of book length essay that's that's titled Candy, which is about well, essentially about how hard it is to class jump in this country still. The great American myth is that we have real class dynamism and that if you can dream it, you can be it in America. But actually, ironically, I was born in 1981. And in my lifetime, that's never been less true based on the wealth gap and the education gap. So I'm trying to work on this big project and hopefully that'll come to some. So we'll see. Yes, we will. We'll definitely be paying attention. 
So now is the time we will move into our Q&A portion of the evening where you, the audience, can ask Nate some questions. Please write them in the chat and I will moderate them through. And we'll get started whenever y'all are ready. I should also say here too, and Josie, I wonder what your thoughts are on this because you're taking the steps to be uh, you know, you're, you're taking the steps to like get your own work done and run a podcast. Do you feel like, like, do you, does one ever know, does a writer ever know if they're on the right track? Do you feel like you're doing the right things? From my end, it really looks like you are, but how do you feel about that? In terms of writing or? Yeah. Like, how are you feeling like, you know, with, about your own writing practice and about running a podcast and sort of being a mover and shaker and editor at the Green Spring Review? Essentially, we're, we're like peers in this particular way. We're both writers. We, we both are content producers in one sh way, shape, or form, and we're both editors. So it's hard to know where you're at, but how are you feeling about where you're at? Ooh, I teeter on this a few sometimes because um, I've always wanted to start a podcast. Like I was talking about it for three years, and then the pandemic came along. I'm like, well, now is the time. <laughs> yeah, but. Cool. I feel like I'm moving in a good direction. It uh, always makes me anxious when my mom is like every day asking me, so uh, what are you going to do with your degree? Then, <laughs> you know, my parents are just kind of like yours, just concerned about how you're going to take care of yourself. We know you want to be like this rock star or whatever, but, you know, practically, like, how are you going to pay your bills? Uh, yeah. We're not going to kick you out just yet, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like I'm moving in a good direction and I'm, I'm working on a large project too. And I'm actually taking a break from producing the podcast until June to finish up the a writing project. So I feel like I'm moving in a good direction, but you know, I can, I can dream. <laughs> well, that's great, Josie. I, I mean, someone, this is, this is gonna sound so silly, like an aphorism, but someone's got to be a rock star. The world has rock stars. People figure out how to do it. So for what it's worth, from the outside looking in, it seems like you're just getting it done, which is awesome. Well, I thank you. Um, so it looks like we have some questions in the chat. So uh, this is from Dr. Smith. I want to ask about writing a novel over 10 years. Like, did your interest change? Did you think sometimes that you weren't writing the same book, didn't want to write the same book? Oh, that's a good one. I think, you know, I started writing the book Shortly after grads, funny enough, I did a writing residency at this place called the Vermont Studio Center the summer of 2008. And that's where I wrote the first chapter of the book. I, I mentioned earlier that sort of I, I grew up, you know, in a, in, a, in a rural place in a family that didn't have much money, which is how my parents always put it. No one ever says poor. People say they don't have much. And I was shocked at how much I didn't know about the broader world and certainly the world of education when I got to college. So I started writing a book that was really about my brothers. I have two brothers who I grew up with and who I shared a bedroom with until they left when I was 16. They both joined uh, the United States Marine Corps. So I started writing a book about two brothers, one of whom was in college at the same time that his brother was in the Marine Corps. And that's still the basic shape of this book. But when I finished a draft of it after maybe, or not really, not even finished a draft, when I finished the, se the section about the college brother, it sort of started to seem to me that the book was skewed if you're only hearing from the brothers. So I, I found myself writing a lot about this woman named Gloria, their mom. And so I ended up writing like 350 pages. I spent a couple of years doing this, just writing a book about the mom. And I thought, well, maybe this is a trilogy or maybe this is, you know, some kind of saga. I don't know. But it's always struck me that it really is just one big fat book, which is why the last big revision I did, I just straight up, everything is separated out. Book one, Gloria. Book two, Kevin. Book three, Alex. And the challenge is that each section, like I said, is about 300 pages. So in the manuscript form, it's like 900 pages. It's like big, big book, which will necessarily get cut down. It needs to be. But the challenge of that has been of revising is it's set during the same year of their lives. So Gloria is at home in California while one son is a senior in college and while her other son is in Iraq. So every time I've edited like a phone call on page 152 where Gloria is talking to Kevin in Ithaca, I have to go check cross-reference like page 428 to make sure that that phone call, if it's mentioned, happens on the right day or says the right thing. Um, and that has been, man, had you told me 10 years ago that I was going to spend this long revising a book? I think I would have told myself like, write a shorter book, dude. Start with like a novella. 
But I also am not displeased because these are characters I've, I've gotten to live with for a long, long time. And I've grown as a writer, which means I think incrementally the book has gotten better through revision, which generally speaking is true. I think it's really, really rare that I've seen a writer so mess up a revision that they've had to like backpedal most of the time, like 98% of the time, our work gets better through revision. So at this point, it does definitely feel like one big contiguous family novel. And if if nothing else, the fun part about looking at it now is it's a real snapshot of where I was as a writer and where I am as a writer. Getting back to what you and I were talking about earlier, Josie, there were things in this draft that I look back now and I think, oh, sweetheart, that was a good idea, but that's just not work. So uh, it's been kind of fun for that. It's It's nice to track your progress and it's cool to kind of really dedicate yourself to a project. It's kind of like a second marriage, but really <laughs> kind of a one-way street. I do most of the talking. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, I um, the projects that I am working on, I've been working on for 10 years as well with nice. large breaks, you know, since I was 10. And <laughs> as you can imagine, I'm not the same writer as I was at 10 years old. And my dad's like, well, when can I read it? I'm like, it has a lot of work. I'm 20 now. It's a lot of editing involved. Yeah. But um, we have several more questions in the chat. Leanna asked, do you have a favorite author? Oh, that is such a terrible question. That's like, I mean, it's a best, it's a great question because it makes you think. But I, I really don't think I could pick just one. It definitely changes, you know, it changes kind of depending on what I'm reading. I'm not, you know, I don't love everything I read, but more often than not, I see the value in it. So I get pretty involved in the reading process. And I've, I've just been reading Esme Weijun Wang's The Collected Schizophrenias, which is a really excellent essay collection that addresses, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. A, schizophrenia. B, diagnostic medicine and, and cultural practices as they relate to medical diagnosis in this country. The history of mental illness and the diagnostic statistical manual, which is used to diagnose mental illness. And I've just been fascinated because, again, it's so funny. I think I used to really like, I, used to, I, I would have told you as a teenager when I was reading a lot of Paul Auster, I like experimental fiction and I like New York fiction and I'm into this and the weirder the better. And these days, I kind of don't care what the story is or what the essay is about topically in some ways, but I really care about a beautiful sentence. Like if someone can really write, then it's just such a pleasure to spend time with. And Esme Weijun Wang is a terrific writer. So I don't know if I have a favorite, but let me recommend Esme. In fact, it's on my desk here because I've been teaching a couple essays from it. This book right here. Right now, I would say this is, this is my favorite book. The answer will change probably in the next couple of books that I read. Yeah, that is always a struggle question for any writer or reader to pick their favorite like author. Cool. So we have another question from Sydney. Uh, what keeps you going as a writer? What is it that you feel is absolutely necessary for you to share and that sets you apart from other writers? I think what keeps me writing is the desire to see a project finished and published. I'm really excited by the idea that like I could be someone who puts a book out in the world. I've had the experience of putting stories and essays and features and, you know, interviews and profiles in the world, and that's super cool. But the idea that someone, it's a bit crazy when you think about it. There are 26 letters in the English language alphabet. We have a few thousand commonly used words that we kind of recycle over and over again. And with that really limited palette, we can t attempt at least to tell any kind of story you want to tell in any genre you want to tell it. We can attempt to describe every human emotion that we can experience. It doesn't mean we're always going to get there, but I think that's what keeps me going is I'm sort of fascinated by the weirdness of it. It, it feels like magic, but it's not. It's, it's sort of elbow grease and letters and words and sentences and paragraphs. And it's kind of fun. It's in some ways it sounds silly. It's not that different than like cooking or gardening or like, doing a house project like painting something or you know god forbid you know my attempts at retiling a bathroom um it feels productive it feels exciting and it feels like a really big challenge and there are tools that you can use to help you accomplish it so so i think i keep writing because i am curious about it and i'm excited to actually do it in terms of the second part of that question i don't know what sets me apart from any other writers there are a lot of you know cis white dude writers in this world and they're overrepresented in publishing if something sets me apart as a writer i would i can tell you what i hope it is i hope that people are entertained by what i write and i also hope 
that it presents them with ideas that are untoward or complicated or a bit difficult because I think complication and nuance is so often lacking in our public discourse, particularly on social media, particularly on cable news, that one space where we can have really tough conversations, nuanced conversations, is in our poems, in our essays, and in our fiction. So that's, that's a writer, that's what I hope, not sets me apart, but I hope it makes me part of a really good club of folks who do that, who write well, and who talk about important stuff. Those sound like good goals to me. So Darius asked, how do you get through adverse moments in your career? Lots of lots of crying and hand-wringing. Um, I'm sort of joking when I say that, but I think, and they happen, and they happen to everybody regardless of career. And there are those moments where, where like problems in your work life or your publishing life or your writing life present you like with with like existential questions. Like, is this worth doing? Should I keep doing this? Am I any good at this? Imposter syndrome is real. And there are some days that I would tell you, I suck at this and I'm, I'm a piece of garbage and I'm not feeling up to approaching this task of trying to edit this book. But the overriding feeling has not been that. So I think I try and remind myself in those moments, those adverse moments, that those moments pass, number one. And, and I, I give y'all's generation so much credit on this front. We're really good. Your generation is really, really good about being compassionate to people. I think I see in your generation a kind of basic hopefulness and basic decency and kindness. That means like when you see someone struggling, a member of your generation is more likely uh, than I think a member of my generation to sort of figure out how to offer help, even if you can't really help. You want to offer it. You, people really, I think, try and be there for each other in your generation. At least that's what I've witnessed in my own classes. And I'm very grateful for that. So I try and remember in those really difficult moments, and I hope this for you and your members of your generation too, that you extend that same compassion to yourself. That like when things are sucky and that when your classes suck and you're way behind and you're like frustrated by the work you've got to do or you know, you're, you're packing up your stuff and going from an online class to your shift at the Outback Steakhouse, that like, yeah, it sucks, but also be as easy on yourself about it as you, as you would be to someone else. Be as compassionate with yourself in those moments as you would treat one of your peers. Because you know what it looks like to see someone struggling. And you know what it looks like to see someone having a really tough day. And most of you, most of us in the world, I think, I think human beings are pretty good ultimately. Most of us would feel badly for that person and would help if we could. And I just hope that, um, Darius, it's a big question. It's a good question. I just hope that y'all are compassionate with yourselves in the same way that you would extend that compassion to other people. Because the moments pass, but they're e they pass more easily with kindness and compassion. Awesome. So Ethan asks, what's your view on self-publishing boom versus traditionally publishing a book? Is self-publishing viable? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this is funny. This has been a big question for a long time. Back in the day, that same kind of snobbishness that applied to sort of well, I only read literary fiction. I don't read sci-fi. I think that attitude is kind of going the way of the dinosaurs. I also think this this type of bias against self-publishing is going the way of the dinosaurs too. And, and that's a good thing. I think when people can control their own publishing process, they feel more empowered and they feel more able to, to reach readers. So you don't always have to have a publisher, certainly not at one of the big houses like Random House, vouch for your work in order for the work to be good, right? You don't really need anyone's stamp of approval to find a readership. The benefits of big publishing are you're going to have an editor ushering you through the process and usually an agent as well. They're going to give you lots of edits. There's some marketing that they'll do and maybe an event or two they'll set up. So the challenges of self-publishing are big. But I also think that there's so much cool self-published stuff. I mean, whether that's chapbooks and zines or whether that's people who are presenting their own digital manuscripts and selling them through a variety of different web stores. I don't want to say the big bad evil one, but but that big bad evil web store has allowed a lot of people to publish a lot of their own stuff. And on the whole, I think that's a good thing. I would encourage you not to, not to give up on other publishing aspirations because it seems like no one's ever gonna like your work. I don't think, in other words, you should self-publish because you feel like you'll never make it in another way. I think you should self, if you're gonna self-publish, I think you should do it proudly and see it as the opportunity that it is, which is to determine for yourself how your book's gonna be marketed, to determine for yourself what events you're gonna do, to determine for yourself how you're gonna reach readers. And there's real power in that. So I actually think, so, I, I respect self-publishing pretty greatly. And interestingly and oddly, big publishers have picked up on this trend and you hear, you hear all the time now, and this has been true for at least a decade, that someone who first self-published their novel had that novel subsequently published by a bigger house because 
it was selling copies and publishing's a business. So those publishers took notice and that's a good, that's as good a barometer as any that I think there's really something to taking control of your own work and self-publishing it if that's what you want. So yeah, I think it's a good thing. I went to a speaker series with Lisa Genova. She was talking about still Alice, how she sold it in the back of her trunk. Yep. And then, like you said, got picked up by a publisher. It became a movie, won some awards. Now she's like huge. And yep. so definitely self-publishing is very much so very viable. Totally. I mean, Terry McMillan, the, the author of How Stella Got Her Groove Back, most famously, Terry McMillan, you know, has had all kinds of publishing contracts over the course of her career um, and did the same kind of she, while she was not self-published, it was a, she started on a really, really small press. They didn't have any money to promote or do anything. So Terry McMillan drove around, you know, selling her book, you know, to friends and strangers and people at church meetings and people at civic events or other literary events or library events, you know, out of the trunk of her car because she knew the work was good. And she was right about that. And she knew she'd find a readership. And I think you'd be hard pressed to find probably a more famous popular author these days than Terry McMillan, who is like, I mean, Terry McMillan, George Pelicanos, there are people who just like churn out books and not churn out like mass market James Patterson paperbacks. Like they're churning out, and I'm not, I'm not trying to crap on James Patterson. Like I'm all for, you know, a good crime novel too. But there's a difference, I think, between the, the sort of grocery store mass market books that sort of where an author has ghostwriters and editors doing a lot of work and huge publicity budgets. I think there's a pretty big difference between that and someone like Terry McMillan, who really has artistic integrity. She writes the books she kind of wants to write. She writes a lot about black women. She has a lot of black women readers. She serves that community incredibly well, and she's awesome. So I, I just respect that kind of pavement pounding. And I think it I think it's a testament to um, someone's integrity and their stick to that Terry McMillan started selling you know, books out of her trunk and is now arguably, you know, one of this country's most famous living writers of color and most celebrated and most award-winning. So there's something to, something to work in your tail off. Absolutely. So we have one more question from Doreen. What was one of the most surprising things you learned in creating your book? <sighs> I think the most surprising thing in drafting anything I've ever written, whether it's a single short story or pulling a whole manuscript together, is that even the act of editing and revising your work is cre is creative. I think for so long, I thought, certainly as an undergraduate, and even in grad school, I think I thought that the creative moment was like the moment of drafting something. It was like, oh yeah, I've got this great idea, and I'm gonna get it down on the page. But it's been so much fun over time, and I think I learned this actually mostly from working on my own big fat novel. Um, there's so much that, to be done once you've got that draft, and I think, Working on a really long project over such a long period of time has surprisingly taught me that stick to counts and that revision is at least as creative as drafting. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us uh, for Nate Brown's reading and conversation with, with me. You'll be able to hear this episode uh, in replay and maybe share it with your friends soon. But again, I wanted to thank Nate. Thank you, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Professor Nylon, for uh, this opportunity. I hope you guys enjoyed this talk. And we are done. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Josie. Thank you, Dr. Smith and Professor Nyland. Again, I'm just really honored. And Josie, uh, I think uh, we're all going to be working for you someday. So keep on keeping on. Oh, that'd be awesome. I will, I'll remember that. <laughs> I, I imagine you'd be like a very just and kind employer. Of course, of course. And thanks again, everybody, for coming. So nice to see the, your, your comments in the chat. It's really awesome. Yes, thank you. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Have a nice night. Yeah, you too, Darius. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.